The message for today is going to be on 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 to 25, but we're actually going to begin our reading at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you know him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Well, we've been talking about this for a few weeks now, about the wonderful privilege that we have to live in the time that we do. This is the time that, that the prophets look forward to, and now we're living it. Um, so what's so special about it? Well, we're living in the time after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And by his Holy Spirit, the word of God is being preached today, and the prophecies about Jesus Christ have been explained. And so we know why Jesus came. We know why Jesus suffered and died, that he did it for us, for the redemption of our sins. And we know that he's returning again to judge the living and the dead and that those who are truly his will share with him in his glory. Are you starting to get this? Like We've spent a few weeks on it now. Is anybody starting to get a little bit excited about the time that we're living in? Anyone? 
Doug is. Good. Doug's excited, everybody. Uh, what about the rest of us? Can we be a bit excited at least? Oh, sometimes I wish God put me in a church with more excitable people. Um, anyway, perhaps we might start to get a little bit more excited about our faith. Anyway, well, last week we, we had the first part of what's going to be a three-part message, that with this privilege comes responsibility. Because we've received the privilege of being saved by the grace of God, with this privilege comes a responsibility of obedience and holiness. And the Apostle Peter gives us three reasons why we are to be holy in all our conduct. Um, and I was sort of thinking, maybe rather than reasons, we might think of these as motivations. And last week, we learned about the first motivation. We are to be holy because our Heavenly Father is holy. Right? So as the children of God, we should be growing up to become just like our Heavenly Father. Um, because we've had such a wonderful blessing of being saved by the grace of God and adopted as His children, aren't we moved to be obedient to our Heavenly Father. Right? So that's what we talked about last week. A second motivation to obey God and to live a holy life is the fear of God. Now, if there's one thing that I reckon isn't very well understood within the church of today, it would have to be the fear of God. It would have to be one of the least understood concepts. On one end of the spectrum, some people picture God as if he's something like a giant sadistic bully with a magnifying glass focusing the sun to scorch ants, right? And guess what? We're the ants. And um, so you, you, you sort of get the idea that I mean. If you can pop up the cartoon, Jeremy. I, I saw this far side cartoon when I was quite, quite a young fella. I, I love Gary Larson's cartoons. Uh, they really appeal to my sense of humour. And for those who are listening to the podcast, I'll describe it. The caption on the cartoon is God at his computer. And on the screen, there's a man walking under a piano that's suspended by a single rope and it's being lowered down the side of a building and God's finger is poised above the smite button. And, and for some people, that's the way that they think when it comes to fearing God. We have to be scared of him. Not only because he's big and powerful, but because he has a predisposition to delight in the smite. I, I, I even made it to rhyme for you. How's that? Uh, right? So, so that's one end of the spectrum. God is looking for an excuse to punish us. He's just looking for the opportunity. So fear God. Now, I hope you realise that that's crazy talk. That's, our God is a God of love. God isn't looking for an excuse to smite us. In fact, he's done everything that he can to save us. But you know how last week I said that one of the greatest problems in the Christian church is that sometimes we tend to overreact to false teaching by creating our own false teaching, right? So somebody might put up this particular view and we go, oh, that's wrong, and we push so hard against that. We spring the pendulum right over to the other side and we start preaching so hard against it, we actually go way past where we're supposed to be and we create our own wrong view. And that's what happens in the way people understand the fear of God. They so overreact to that view that, oh, God's just looking for an excuse to punish us, 
they so overreact to that that they say, we, we're not supposed to fear God. And they believe that the fear of God is something that is taken away for the children of God. And they have the view that the fear of God, that's old covenant stuff. That's something that they experienced in the Old Testament. And, and many unbelievers, maybe unbelievers today should fear God. But for those who are saved, oh, we've got no reason to fear God anymore. And they'll have a few pet Bible verses that they'll trot out to try and prove their case. But the thing is, the command to fear God, you don't only find it in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament too. In the Gospels, Jesus taught us to fear God. Throughout the book of Acts, we see the fear of God being a part of the everyday experience of the early church. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, it says, For the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And then throughout the letters of the New Testament written by the apostles, they teach us to fear God. So please don't ever let anyone tell you that Christians shouldn't fear God. If we don't fear God, we don't know God very well at all. So let me explain how a healthy, reverential fear of God works. And to do this, I'm going to begin with an example that Paul gives on the topic of obeying earthly authorities, right? So this is, I'm just using this as an example, and he's talking about earthly authorities here. In Romans chapter 13, Paul tells the Roman Christians that they should obey their earthly authorities. And he says that the earthly authorities are not a terror to those who do the right thing. But he says, but if you do the wrong thing, be afraid, because he does not bear the sword in vain. Right, so if you're walking out the front of the bank down there in Henry Street and you come across a policeman, you don't need to be afraid if you've just been into the bank and conducted your business. But if you come out of that bank with a balaclava on your head and, and a gun in your hand and a bag of cash in the other, you've just knocked the bank off. Well, you've probably got every reason to be afraid of the police officer, haven't you? Now, that's probably a bit of a silly example, but... But this is the way it is. You don't have to be afraid of the earthly authorities if you haven't done the wrong thing. But if you have done the wrong thing, be very afraid. Now, I'm going to take that example and say this. In the same way, if we are living by the Spirit... Now, what's it mean to live by the Spirit? It means that we're living in tune with the Spirit. This is the, the difference between living according to the flesh and living according to the Spirit. Living according to the flesh, that's living to satisfy earthly desires, whereas living by the Spirit is living to satisfy God. So it means that we'll be living in tune with the Spirit and we will be obeying God and living lives of holiness. And so as children of God living by the Spirit, pleasing God in the way that we live holy lives, guess what? We have no reason to fear. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit 
you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but, to have, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. All right? So, so some people, they'll actually use that very same passage to try and say Christians should never fear God. And they would say because we're sons of God and sons of God don't fear. And so it doesn't matter whether you do the right thing or whether you do the wrong thing. We have no reason to fear because we've been forgiven. And to do that, they just concentrate on verse 15 and forget about the rest of it. But you see, that's precisely the opposite to what Paul is saying. Our obedience, our holiness, the way that we live, demonstrates that we are indeed sons of God. And so we have no reason to fear. If we're living by the Spirit, if we're demonstrating the righteousness and holiness of God, well, guess what? We're just like a chip off the old block. Right? That's the way God is. God is righteous. God is holy. He's our Heavenly Father, and we're just becoming like Him. We are His children. No reason to fear. And then, in Romans chapter 11, Paul gives the flip side of this. And he gives the example of Israel and how because of Israel's unbelief, they were broken off. And then he warns us not to be disobedient like Israel. Because if God didn't spare Israel, guess what? He won't spare us either. And so he says, do not become proud, but what? Fear, but fear. So that's what Paul taught in Romans. And what Paul taught in Romans is entirely consistent with what Peter is teaching us here in the first letter that he wrote. In verse 17, Peter says that if we know God as our Heavenly Father, then we also have to recognise that our Father is the righteous judge and that he judges impartially. In essence, what he's saying is he's really reminding us of the final judgment that is to come, and he's forcing us to consider our position at that final judgment. He's forcing us to ask ourselves, is it right that if God has forgiven my sin, is it right that I should continue to go on sinning as if it doesn't matter? That's the question he's forcing us to ask. He doesn't actually ask it outright, but that's, that's what he's forcing us to ask. And when I ask that question, I've just got to say, well, God forbid. No, I can't just go on living the same way as I always was. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. What's the time of our exile? Are there any exiles here today? Any exiles? A few of us are exiles? Okay, we talked about this a, a few weeks ago. We're all, as Christians, we are all exiles. You see, the world is not our home. Our home is to be in glory with Christ Jesus. And we're just passing through this life. This life 
We are exiles. We are sojourners in this life. But while we're in exile, while we are living this life, how are we to behave? Conduct yourselves with fear. Why? Because our Heavenly Father judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Don't, don't ever forget that our Heavenly Father is also the righteous judge of the universe. And when we know this, we will always have a healthy, reverential fear of God. Not terrified to be in his presence because he's adopted us as his children, but a healthy, reverential fear that spurs us on to obedience and holiness. We have to remember that our God is returning as judge. Probably the best example I can think of for this is whose mother ever said to them, you just wait till your father gets home. Did anyone's, my mum said that. Did anyone else's mum ever say that? Your mum didn't. Oh, she did. What about your mum? Did she ever say that? No, she's a brutal and bitter, a brutal woman. <laughs> Sorry. Um, this is what we're reminded. We love our fathers, but we know that there's going to be a reckoning if we misbehave in their absence when they come back again, and we know there's going to be a reckoning. Righto. Which gives us the third motivation to live in obedience and holiness. And this, for me, is the clincher. The cost of our forgiveness and being born again was so high, let's never take it for granted. Now, you know what a ransom is, hey? It's what gets paid to set someone free. But as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, what have we been ransomed from? Now, straight away, everybody's going to say, sin. We've been ransomed from our sin. But what does that mean? You know, a lot of the time, we tend to think in terms of, well, God set us free from our sins. But what we're really thinking is God set us free from the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And that's the way that we tend to think. He sets us free from the punishment we deserve. It's, it's like God has given us a get out of jail free card, compliments of his son. All right, so just hold on to this card because you have faith in me. And that way, when you get to judgment day, you just play that get out of jail free card and she's all good. Now, is this what God's done for us? Is this the ransom that God paid? Well, yes, sort of, but it's only half the story. He ransomed us from so much more than this. Peter says in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Now, the Greek word there that we translate as futile means empty, useless, fruitless. And we've been ransomed from these empty, useless, fruitless ways of our forefathers and ourselves. And here's the thing. No matter how great our culture might seem, no matter how high our culture, no matter how grand or how productive our culture, no matter how enlightened our culture seems to be, it's empty, it's fruitless, it's useless. Do you know why? It's because it comes with a use-by date. 
Everything that the world has to offer me expires when I die. And every physical thing in the world itself is going to pass away when Jesus returns. Everything expires. And so to set our hearts on the things of the world and the ways of the world is futility. Our hope, our outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls and being in glory with Christ. That's our hope. That's what we're looking for. That's what's not futile. So what have we been ransomed from? We've been ransomed from the whole world merry-go-round. We've been ransomed from the godless, worldly, pointless way of life that most live. See, when God saved us, the price that God paid wasn't just enough to pay for the for the punishment that we deserve, it was much more than that. He paid to set us free. He paid to set us free from the pointless way of life that earned us the sentence of punishment in the first place. Wow! I don't know if you've ever considered this. He paid so that I don't have to continue to be the same despicable person that I always was. And he paid so that you don't have to be the same despicable person you always were. Now, what would something like that cost? How would you value something like that? Wives, what would you pay if there was, if you had the financial means, what would you pay to knock the rough edges off your husband so that he would become a much nicer bloke. And my wife's grinning down there and she's just calculating how much she's willing to go into debt <laughs> to pay for that. Parents, what would you pay to knock the rough edges off, off, off your little terrors to transform them into little cherubs? Probably a fair bit. Probably a fair bit. Well, the thing is, it wasn't a physical cost that God paid. It wasn't silver or gold. It was the precious blood of his one and only son. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God gave his beautiful, perfect, righteous, holy, loving son to die so that we don't have to stay the same as we always were. Jesus died, not just so that we can have a get out of jail free card. Jesus died so that we could become like him in holiness, obedience, righteousness, now, if we decide, right, I'm just going to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness bit, and I'm just going to continue to live in the same old way that I always did, the same way that people of the world live, and Jesus is just going to keep on forgiving me, if that's the level of our faith, then we're only halfway there. Jesus died so that we could become like him. 
by his Holy Spirit. He lives in us and transforms us and renews us. Now, isn't that just the best, obe- best motivation to live in obedience and holiness? Jesus died so that we can. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus did it for us. This is the privileged age in which we live. Jesus died and then God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and our hope are in God. Have you ever read the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes? Some of you have. If you haven't, you should give it a read sometime. It's a good book to read. The author of Ecclesiastes, he doesn't even actually name himself, but we're pretty sure it was King Solomon. And as he writes this, King Solomon's near the end of his life. He's an old man looking back over his life and and remembering and looking at everything that the world has had to offer him. And you know what he says? Meaningless. Meaningless. Now, as the king, like, and he was a very wealthy king at Men's Bible Study the other night, we were reading about this, and he had much wealth and basically everything that he wanted, and, and even with all that stuff, he says, just meaningless. He says, it's like chasing after the wind. It's like, there it is, I want that. Oh, nothing. I want that. Oh, nothing. Oh, like chasing after the wind, meaningless. And at the conclusion, he comes to that this, this wise man, the wisest man who ever lived, looking back over his life, his conclusion is the best thing that one can do in life is to fear God and keep his commands. And as disciples of Jesus, let's never forget that. Everything else is a chasing after wind. Fear God. And obey his commands. How we live matters. What's the motivation? Why is holiness important? Because our Heavenly Father is holy, as his children, we also should be holy. If we know that God is the righteous judge, let us fear him and live in holiness. And the clincher for me, the cost of our redemption was so high, let's never take it for granted. The precious blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord, was lavishly poured out, not just to cancel punishment, but so that we could become like him. So let's live for him. Next week, we're going to have part C of this message as we see another expression of holiness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are indeed holy. Help us to know you. Give us a holy, reverent fear. Not to be afraid of you as as if we could never approach you, but that we would truly know you as you are, Creator, Lord, 
judge, righteous, impartial, perfect, holy. And our Lord, we, we want to thank you that you have saved us, not just from punishment, but that you have ransomed us to a new way of life, born again to a life of holiness and obedience to you. Lord, we don't only want to be half saved, and, and it seems silly the way that, that we tend sometimes to hold on to our old way of life. In reality, it's just chasing after the wind, meaningless, futility. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, and that we would begin preparing for this now by living in obedience and holiness with the help and the transforming power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.